Last week, we were looking at loose ends, and I repeatedly stated that God leaves no loose ends when it comes to redemption. We looked at three scenes to prove this point, Genesis 3 and the scene of the crucifixion, the skull. We looked at the hyssop branch that first made an appearance in Exodus 12 and that shows up at the crucifixion scene. We looked at the darkness and the plagues of Egypt for three days, the darkness over the cross for three hours. And I said that part of what was happening on the cross was that the sins of the cosmic sons of God, those who are what we would call supernatural beings, the Bible calls them cosmic powers, that their sin was also being punished on the cross as well. The reason why we're doing all of that is because everything in this series, whether it's directly connected to it or not, in some way, shape, or form, has to do with the cross. Whether it's directly connected to it, if it's on its way to the cross, or if it's a reality because of the cross, this whole series, the whole notion of spiritual warfare exists, and the cross settles the matter. The next four messages will be more practical, how we live in light of the cross, which is in and of itself spiritual warfare. Today's message, however, will be more theological in nature. I made a somewhat startling observation last week that on the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for both sins, for all sin, cosmic and human, but that only human sin could be forgiven. Most of the atonement theories that you are aware of do not make that claim. They sufficiently and specifically highlight that the cross is for humanity. Only one theory, the Christus Victus, has an the cross overthrows the works of the devil. But I think the cross is much more significant than that. So either I'm a heretic, or it's time to consider if aspects of deep theology that, are, that we've come to accept are true may have more implications than we're used to. I've stated that and fundamentally believe that our best theology is too man-centric. Even our view of the crucifixion and what it was intended to accomplish is primarily and almost solely for some focused on man. We talked about different views of the atonement. I explained to you that my perspective is somewhat of a hybrid between what's called the Christus Victor view and what we commonly are familiar with the penal substitution view. I said that darkness was the issue for me to help prove that supernatural beings, namely Satan and angels, were also being punished on the cross. And in trying to prove that point, there were two questions that I asked that I did not answer. Today, I intend to answer those questions and one other loose end from a few weeks ago with this question I asked in that sermon, what if any connection between the blood and the water in Exodus, is there a connection between the blood and the water in Exodus and the blood and the water that came out of Jesus on the cross? I intend to answer that as well your time permit. With that brief recap, let's begin. Last week I said this, the cross first and foremost is the ultimate judgment against all sin, the gods and human beings. Today I want to clarify that a little bit by saying this, the cross is judgment day for the gods not for humanity. The cross is judgment day for the gods, not for humanity. Let me explain. We're going to focus on John's testimony because he is the apostle whom Jesus loved. Let's return to a scene that we've already looked at a few times in this series, John 12, 31 and 33. Through 33, here's what Jesus said. A few hours before the crucifixion, 
the night before. Here's what Jesus said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, if you don't read verse 47 of John 12 in the same scene, then the judgment of this world seems like he's talking about humanity, people. But in verse 47, Jesus makes it clear, John 12, 47, he says this. After having said in verse 31, now was the judgment of this world. I think he clarifies it by saying, now the ruler of this world would be cast out. In verse 47, to make sure that people knew what he meant by world, he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So either Jesus is contradicting himself, which is not happening, or Jesus is making a claim that I'm about to go on the cross, and that is the judgment of the world, and the world would be connected to Satan, the cosmic powers of evil. I am about to judge the gods of this world, namely Satan, when I go to the cross. In 1 John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, he says this in verse 3-8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is John's own words. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is saying the judgment of this world, namely Satan, is happening at the cross. He said, I'm not judging humanity. I came to save humanity. So the cross is not the judgment of humanity, but the salvation of humanity. But it is the judgment of the gods. Revelation 22, John also wrote Revelation, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Here's what he says beginning in verse 10, quoting from Jesus himself. And he, spoiler alert, Jesus, said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still do ho be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So listen to what Jesus is saying in John. He's saying, look, I'm coming soon. And when I come, my recompense is coming with me. I'm going to repay each one according to what he's done. Jesus is saying, I'm coming back to judge humanity. He's not coming back to judge cosmic powers because he did that at the cross. He's coming back to judge humanity. The language of repaying everyone is primarily talking about humanity. Look at verse 14. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Well, we have no biblical, exegetical, or even hypothetical evidence that any cosmic beings who sinned are trying to repent and wash their robes. We don't have any evidence of that. So the blessed are those who wash their robes. He's talking about human beings who believe the gospel and are trying to honor the Lord by their purity, by obeying Jesus. That's the people that he's coming to repay. And he says, outside are the dogs. He's not talking about your pet. 
It's a euphemism for people who reject him. They're sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and all liars. All liars. You see, Jesus says in here, I'm coming back to judge, but the category of judgment is all human. When I come back, he said, I'm the cross, I'm here to save humanity. I'm not judging people yet. The world I'm judging is not humanity. When I come back, then I'm going to judge people after having received the mercy of the cross. The cross is judgment day for the gods, not for humanity. The beings that he's going to repay, according to what they have done, it's humanity. Just before, two, two chapters before Revelation 22, we get to Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. This is the scene, no matter what you believe, that every person will be in. I don't care if you reject Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you never heard of Jesus, if he gets on your nerves. This scene, everyone will be in attendance. And here's the scene beginning in verse 11 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, which are not humans, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This judgment scene is not a judgment scene of cosmic beings. They've already been judged. Prior to this scene, Satan, the false prophet, and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire. Then humanity. So all the cosmic beings that sinned against God, lake of fire. All the human beings that don't accept the grace of God, lake of fire. All the cosmic beings that never sinned, in heaven with God. All the human beings who accept the forgiveness of their sin in Jesus, in heaven with God. The dead being judged here are not celestial beings. They're human beings. Cosmic beings have already been judged and are awaiting their final punishment. They've been judged at the cross, found guilty, and are not forgiven. But many of them, namely Satan, are still free to roam and wreak havoc. So until God returns to judge humanity, they're here. And they contribute to why we fight, why we battle. When he returns, all evil, human and cosmic, will receive repayment for what they have done. But for now, the cross was the judgment day for the cosmic beings, and they guarantee that their eternal punishment is going to happen. It is not a guarantee that ours is going to happen because people can believe in Jesus. Some of you aren't convinced. I appreciate that. Let me explain. Our main passage today will be Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. This is our main passage to make this point. Although, you know, we'll hit a couple of other things we know how we do. Beginning in verse 15 of Colossians 1, here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This passage says a lot, but there are four main emphasis in this passage we're going to look at. One, an emphasis on Jesus' being. Two, an emphasis on cosmic beings. Three, an emphasis on human beings. And four, an emphasis on the cross and what it means. It begins with an emphasis on Jesus' being. At the end of verse 15, it starts off, he is the image of the invisible God. Now remember, Scripture is written to those of us in the visible realm. We cannot see the spiritual world, but we know it exists. We've seen it throughout the Bible. There are two worlds that we're aware of. One where there's cosmic beings that work to and fro. We do not see them. We may sense their presence. We may see their activity in the world. We may see it in our own lives, but we don't see them. It is an invisible world to us. We don't see God. We don't see the Holy Spirit. We see the work of these things, but we don't see them face to face. And if we do see a demon, it's in someone, not in its spiritual form. Unless we've crossed over to the occult, and that's a different conversation. But this is starting off acknowledging Jesus' is being. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, this is written to those of us in the visible realm. God wants to make sure we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and what implications it has in the invisible realm and the visible realm. We largely think of what Jesus did in our realm, but this passage is highlighting, no, there's an invisible realm and a visible realm, and what he's doing and who he is affects both of them. Now, it's important to note this is saying he is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. What this is saying in theological terms is that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He's co-eternal. He's not just a human being. He's co-eternal. This Jesus, though different in nature because he's part human being, has also been around before all things. This is why the passage says he's preeminent. He is co-eternal. He is consubstantial of the same essence as the Father. They want us to know he's the image of the invisible God. Remember when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is an important claim. But have you ever asked this question and really tried to answer it? Why did Jesus have to be fully God? Like, why did he have to be? There are plenty of verses that tell us that he is, and we interpret them as, well, he's the only one capable of fully satisfying God's wrath against sin. And I believe that to be true. But there are no verses that explicitly state that he had to be fully God. They just state that he is. So why did he have to be fully God? Why couldn't he have been born of a virgin with the Holy Spirit, a godly dude, died on the cross, came back, and went to heaven like Enoch? Enoch walked with God, went to heaven. He didn't die. Why did he have to be God? Why was that necessary? Now, you have to think in terms of who God is when you answer that question. Don't think in terms of what you've been taught. Think in terms of God can determine how salvation works however he wants. God didn't need to do it a certain way. He chose to do it this way for his glory. So why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? We get why the man part, because man sinned. But why does he have to be fully God? I can't find a verse that explains that in detail. 
I can find many that says that he is, and I believe all of them. But why? Hmm. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So this passage starts off, our passage, he's the image of the invisible God. It's co-eternal. This is truly God. And then it gets into his authority. All things were created by him. Right? So there it is. He created all things. So everything you see is created by him. Everything you've ever heard of, everything that's in existence, is created by him, this Jesus, co-eternal with the Father. Image of the invisible God. Created by him. But then the verse breaks down the duality of his authority. It goes to location first. So all things were created where? In heaven, on earth. All right, so it's breaking down Jesus' authority is where? It's in heaven and on earth. Making that clear. He's God. He has authority in heaven, on earth. And to be clear, it reiterates it using different language. Visible, what we can see, and then visible, what we can't see. This passage is starting off emphasizing who Jesus is and what authority he has. And his authority is on heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Only then do we move on to the authority that he has over the other aspect of creation. There are two aspects of creation in this scene. There's creation, which is a place, and creation, which are people. There's a place, heaven and earth, and then there's people. And by people, there are two kinds of people in this passage. There are cosmic beings, and then there are cosmos, human beings. Let's continue. In verse 16 still. So for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This language is emphasizing cosmic beings. Let me read you a brief commentary on this passage. It says, in this passage, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are generally believed to refer to spiritual or celestial beings of various ranks. In the context of the ancient Mediterranean world, both Jewish and Hellenistic cultures believed in hierarchies of celestial beings or spiritual powers that exerted influence on the world. Some of these were good, aligned with God, while others were considered evil. These terms, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, are part of an effort to denote the full spectrum of these spiritual beings or powers. The key point Paul is making here is that all of these, good or evil, were created by God through Christ and therefore are subordinate to Christ. Christ is preeminent or superior over all creation. So we start off with an emphasis on Jesus' being, then an emphasis on his authority, where? Heaven and earth. And then it moves to an emphasis on his authority on cosmic beings. These are supernatural beings. You get location, heaven and earth, beings, supernatural beings. This is an important structure because this structure will answer the two questions from last week and others. And here were those questions. How is Jesus dying on the cross the judgment of Satan and the gods of this world? When Jesus said that in John 12, 31, that the rule of this world be cast out, how was that a judgment? How was Jesus dying on the cross a judgment of the gods of this world? And why does it disarm them and put them to open shame, which we got from Colossians 2.15? Why does it disarm them? 
Let's ask this question. If Jesus already has authority over them, cosmic beings, because he's preeminent and because he created them, then why does his death on the cross place them in subjection to him? He's already in authority over them. So why does the cross do something that he had since creation? Hmm. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So now here comes the emphasis on human beings. So this passage is making it clear, starting from heaven to earth. So here's God, the invisible God, the co-eternal God, who has authority in heaven and on earth, the places. Then he has authority over the beings, the creation he created. Creation is a people and place. So there's authority over the cosmic beings, rulers, thrones, dominions, authorities. And then he has authority over the church, human beings, us. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So who is he? He's before all things. All things hold together. All statements of power and authority. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of cosmic beings and human beings. Rulers, thrones, and authorities to the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, he's preeminent. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. But why the fullness of God? Here's why in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We get three angles from this. A what, a where, and a how. So what happened? He reconciles to himself all things. Where? On earth and heaven. How? By making, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's ask three more questions, and let's answer them. Why does he have to reconcile all things to himself? And why does he have to reconcile them on earth and heaven? Didn't he say when he taught the disciples to pray in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So he gives the impression that in heaven, God's will is being done already? That's the impression I get. So why does he have to reconcile things on earth and in heaven if God's will is already done in heaven, at least for our understanding? What's the purpose of reconciliation for? Them? Heaven is where everything is good. We're we hoping to get there. So why are you reconciling heaven? And I get earth, but why heaven? And why does the blood of the cross make peace? What's happening? Let's put all the questions together so we know what we're talking about. Why is Jesus dying on the cross, the judgment of Satan and the gods of this world? Why does it disarm them and put them to open shame? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be God and man? Why does he have to reconcile all things to himself? Why does he have to reconcile on earth and in heaven? And why does the blood of the cross make peace for us, but not for them, not for cosmic beings? And if he already has authority, because he's preeminent and he created them, then why does the cross place them in subjection to him? I said this before at the beginning of the Roman series, and I was almost attacked by certain members of the church. I'll never forget that day. It was a beautiful Sunday. Because it proved that my church, our church, pays attention to the Bible. 
I don't care who you are. You just can't come in here and say something unless you're going to prove it. And I like that because I've helped create that culture in this church. So even if you're not sure what I'm saying, I'm not just being reckless because I know I can look at some faces and be like, yeah, I can't wait to talk to you after this already. My man Bands was already over there concerned, like, wait a minute, man. <laughs> He's already worried. Thomas is over there like, nah, bro, not you, bro. Here's what I said in Romans 1, and I was proud of this. Karen was one of the people that wasn't going for it. Here's what I said in Romans 1. I said, we've been trained to process Jesus' authority from what happened at creation. Like, he's always been this Jesus. But in the Bible, it says that he became something else after the cross and resurrection. And people say, hold up, Pastor, hold up. And the next week, some people came back to me and said, hey, bro, kind of right when you said that you did that. Let me show you why I'm saying that statement. Because we've been trained to think, well, Jesus has always been in authority. I mean, he's God. We know that he's co-eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's always been. So sometimes we breeze over this as if it's always been this way, but the Bible doesn't think that way. And I think we've actually trained ourselves to think less of the cross because we think that Jesus was something, died on the cross, and went back to who he was. But the cross says Jesus was something, died on the cross, and became something else. And if we don't acknowledge that, then we belittle what happened on the cross as if it was just nothing for Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't crying out to God. Sweat becoming drops of blood because the cross was nothing. And when I'm done, I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. Absolutely not. But we've been trained to think that way, but that is not how the Bible describes who Jesus is, the fully God and fully man. A couple examples. Luke 4, the temptation of Christ. This is what the devil said. Remember this? The devil said that, and the devil, beginning of verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give this authority, all this authority in their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Don't breeze over what Satan is saying here. Now, I joked about this before and said, look, Satan's the middleman. He said, somebody gave it to me, I can give it to you. Well, by default, I would be like, well, I wanted to see the plug. Who's the person that gave it to you? Why would I bow to you if you got it from somebody else, right? But Satan's making a point. I have been given authority over all the kingdoms, and he was given in this moment the ability to show Jesus all humanity. Gazillions of people probably worshiping Jesus, the very thing that he's coming to do, He's showing them all the kingdoms of the world and saying, these are mine if you worship me. But after the cross and resurrection, in Matthew 28, listen to what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Don't think that Jesus is talking from co-eternal. He's talking from post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. In other words, remember, Satan, look at the language. I will give you all this authority. It has been delivered to me. I can give it to whomever I want. Post-cross and resurrection, Jesus, all authority has now been given to me. What Satan had, I took it. And now you go and take back other people. This is not Jesus speaking as co-eternal. This is Jesus speaking as crucified Messiah. Romans 1, 3 and 4, this is what caused the conflict from before. I thought it was only right to bring it back. It was the verse where I made that statement where people were like, hold up, Pastor, I don't know about that. He said this in Romans 1, verses 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when I made that statement, people were like, hold on now, because in their minds, he's always been that. But that is not what the Bible says. And if you believe the word of God, you got to believe what it says, not how you feel. 
The Bible says that he became the son of God in power to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. So that means before that, that was not a title that he was given. God is not giving Jesus back the title that he had. He's giving him something that he wasn't before. I don't know what the co-eternal relationship was like in those distinctions. But something happened at the cross and resurrection that changed who Jesus is for all eternity. In fact, in Revelation 5, he's described as a lamb that appears to have been slain. You think that's what he looked like in the co-eternal? That's not a co-eternal picture of Jesus. That's a post-crucifixion description. Even in eternity. And the fact that he did that, he's the only one that can open the scroll. Colossians 2.14 and 15, where we got the question from last week, says this. By canceling the record of debt stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's connecting him, putting them to shame, and triumphing over them to the cross. It is not saying this is who Jesus was as co-eternal. Not saying he didn't have that authority, but for some reason, him dying on the cross is significant enough to change the identity that he had before doing it. I'm not saying it because it's how you've been trained theologically. I'm saying it because the Bible does. I'll rub against any theological tradition that doesn't acknowledge what the Bible clearly says. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Listen to this. You know it well, but listen to this in light of what we're saying. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, right? Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, it typically means because of what I just said, this is now true. That's a succinct way. Therefore, as a result of what I just said, so as a result of Jesus being found in human form and humbling himself, becoming obedient, to the point of death, that, that's there because you only die because you sin, right? So he wants to make sure you know he became obedient to the point of death, but death is only reserved for those who sin, and he didn't sin, but he became obedient and died as if he did sin. This is what Paul's drawing attention to. There's none of us in here that would go to prison and live a brutal life for somebody else, and if we did, it wouldn't be easy. You may do it for a loved one. But if you knew what you were getting into, if they let you spend a couple of days in that prison and you were brutalized, you would probably be like, look, I love you, but I can't do that time if I ain't do the time. Jesus was like, I'll do the time as if I did the crime. So because of that, Paul says this, therefore, as a result of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in case you didn't know, Jesus was not his name as the co-eternal God. Jesus is the name of the son of Mary. So when it says Jesus, it's not talking about that was his name in the eternity past. It was a name decided by God that would be the name that would be an authority over all other names because of the cross. We've been trained to think of his authority from creation, but the Bible says 
his authority is coming from the crucifixion. It's both, but the emphasis in the Bible is because of what he did, not just because of who he is from eternity past. The New Testament is replete with examples that put the emphasis on who Jesus is and what Jesus did from the standpoint of the cross. It acknowledges that he's the God from eternity. Hebrews 1 and other passages, they acknowledge he's co-eternal, but they place his authority at the cross. And so I'm going to do the same this morning. Let's return back to verse 20, and then let's answer some of these questions. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. First question, why was it necessary for Jesus to be God and man? Now, we know why it's necessary for him to be man. We can go to Hebrews 2 for that, right? Hebrews 2 says this. I'm only going to read just verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And it goes on to say he had to be made for like his brothers in every way, to be a merciful and faithful high priest. So why he had to become man makes sense. It's easy. But why did he have to be God and man? Let's go back to verse 16 of Colossians 1. It says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus created all things human and divine. He did that. No one else did that. He created them human and divine. And to take on the consequences for the actions of his creation, he maintains important distinctions of his creation. See, if it's only the sins of, see, only humanity's sins are forgiven, but everyone's sins are punished. This is why I said the ruler of this world will be cast out. I'm going to get ready to judge this world when I'm on the cross. So because he created divine and human beings to take on the consequences for their actions, he maintains important distinctions of that creation. Remember what we just read in Philippians 2, right before that. It said this, verse 6 and 7, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Listen to what this passage is saying. That Jesus is fully God, but he emptied himself. So he did not count the access to the authority and power of being fully God. He didn't count that as something that he was going to maintain and use in the human body. So he chose to make himself less powerful, functionally speaking. Functionally speaking, Jesus decided to make himself less powerful, almost on par with other supernatural. Now, he's still fully God, objectively. He can't get rid of that. But functionally, I'm not going to access that. In other words, from a supernatural perspective, functionally, I'm going to make myself weaker than I would be if I'm functioning as fully God. Because if I'm fully God, I ain't eating, sleeping. Satan can't even get next to me unless I let him. I don't need no angels to minister to me. But as less, this is a decision. By denying himself the right to access the fullness of his authority as God, Jesus allows himself functionally, functionally to be a less powerful supernatural being. Functionally. Objectively, fully God, 
equal to God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Functionally, acting as less than God, but still supernatural. Functionally speaking. By analogy, this is what I think Philippians 2 is sort of getting at. By analogy. In the wilderness, when Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led out to the, to the wilderness by the, by the Holy Spirit, it says that he fasted for 40 days. I don't know if you ask questions, like, why would he fast for 40 days? Well, because that was, in that day and age, it made you weak. I mean, if we fast now, after a while, you feel a little bit of weakness. Some of us fast for a few days, and we feel refreshed, like, man, this is fantastic. I don't know anybody got to day 31. Being here looking sick, like, man, Pastor Kirk, you losing weight, but you don't look well, brother. Jesus fasts 40 days, making himself weak in the flesh and choosing in that weakness to be tempted by the devil. But because Jesus is no ordinary human being, fasting for 40 days made him really weak. That was as close as that he could get to us in our strongest. For Jesus to wait 40 days and then go into the, and the, this is the devil. This isn't like some, you know, this isn't his own desire. This is the devil. He's weakened. He's hungry. Well, that scene is similar to what he did by, all right, I'm going to weaken myself. Not objectively, but functionally, I will not access the fullness of my deity. I will not. I refuse to do that so that I can be this unique divine hybrid. Objectively, fully God. Functionally, still a supernatural being, but functioning less than. So because Jesus created divine and human beings, he maintains the substance of all his creation. I'm going to be a human being. I'm going to be a supernatural being. But I'm not going to be fully what I could be. Why does he have to reconcile all things to himself? Well, since Jesus created all things for him and through him, he, in taking responsibility, for the sin of his creation, has to reconcile things to himself because it's his own holiness that was offended. The wrath of God against his sin is the Father's. But Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So the wrath of God against him was also his own. His own wrath. The Father's not the one that has wrath, and Jesus doesn't. It's his own, too. He understands it. He understands that wrath because he's co-eternal with the Father. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like, man, take this cup. I'm not sure if I can do this. But not my will, but your will be done. He knows what that wrath is. In order to right the wrongs of his creation, he has to reconcile things to himself because it's his creation. His creation is the one who sinned. So to take responsibility for it, I got to reconcile them to myself because I am who they sinned against. Now, it's not just individually. It's all three sinned against God, the Father, Son, and the whole Trinity. But Jesus is rec reconciling them to himself. Because he's taking responsibility for all of the sin of his creation. Why does he have to reconcile on earth and in heaven? Because a desire to sin took place in heaven and on earth. Because the sin that takes place is from beings he created in heaven and they came to earth with it. Remember what we read from 1 John 3, 8? Satan's been sinning from the beginning. What does that mean? The beginning of Adam and Eve? 
Maybe. When Jesus talks, I think bigger than that. I think Satan's been sinning from the beginning, maybe shortly after he was created. And as I said last week, human sin and cosmic sin is inextricably linked. Can we really make a case that Eve would have sinned without Satan tempting her? You can't make an exegetical case, maybe a philosophical one, but why would she sin? unless prompted to do so by a cosmic being. Sin happens on earth and in heaven. When we get to Ephesians 6, it describes the evil, the cosmic powers of evil in the heavens. That's how it describes it. Those who sinned were created on earth and in heaven. So Jesus has to reconcile all things on earth, and in heaven. Because that's where sin took place. It wasn't just here. It plays out here. We only get snippets of pictures like, there's a war, Daniel 10, and the prince of Persia stopped me. And then, the, and then Michael came and stopped him. And then now I'm going to fight against, we get this idea that there's this war going on. We see in Revelation 12, and Satan and his angels fought against Michael and his angels. We don't get none of that. You know, when I was a kid, it used to rain, and it, when it was, and it was sunny, they would say the devil's beating his wife. I got a little older, and I remember as a kid being like, man, who would marry that dude? I couldn't imagine a woman marrying a devil. Then I got a little older and realized that ain't no good theology. That's that hood theology. That's street. That's that gangster gospel. Hey, many untrue. But Jesus has to reconcile all the places that sin affected. All the places, and he has to reconcile, pay the penalty for all the people who caused the sin, and it's both cosmic and human. They're inextricably linked. We heard in Ephesians 6, do we not wrestle with flesh and blood? He's telling us all the stuff that you see is not just human beings. We saw in 2 Timothy 2.26, people have been taken captive to do the devil's will. They're not doing their own will, it's the devil's will. Now it's their own choice, sure. But it's the devil's will. Cosmic beings sin and human sin are inextricably linked. And so Jesus, because he created all these beings and is taking responsibility for them, He's reconciling to himself all that they've done and in both locations. The cross is deeper than we give it credit for. When the cosmic beings sinned, the co-eternal Jesus disowned them. But when he paid the penalty for their sin as the fully God and fully man Jesus, he owns them. Now, I paid your debt. Now I'm responsible. And guess what? You're not forgiven. Last week after the sermon, me and Jonathan were talking, and he, he brought up this, this, this scene from a movie called Sleeper. And I'm not going to describe the movie because it's a sad movie. It's about these kids who go to a group home and they're taken advantage of by the security guard. And at the one point in the movie, there's a guy who hates that guy, the guy who was taking advantage of these kids in this group home. And he paid this guy, the guy who was taking advantage of these kids, he owed a debt of $8,000. So this guy paid the debt for him. said, I'm paying off his debt. And then he told another guy, you can kill him. They were like, yeah, but what about his debt? He said, no, I paid off his debt. You can kill him now because I owned his debt. Jesus owns their debt. And so now you are not saved. You're not forgiven. You can't be. But why? Why does the blood of the cross make peace for us, but not for them? I remember one time people have asked, well, do you think the devil can be forgiven? Or cosmic beings? It's a good question. Don't laugh. You've asked dumb questions. But you know what? Here's the thing, though. You'd have to provide proof that cosmic beings are trying to repent. 
I don't have any exegetical or philosophical reason to think that Satan is trying to repent. Forgiveness is not just because, it's because people who want to repent. I don't have any exegetical reason that any cosmic being, that the gods of Egypt, that Satan, I have no exegetical reason to believe that they're trying to repent. Now, last week when I said, I, I said it like this, why we're forgiven and they're not. I said, they sinned in his presence, we sinned in his omnipresence. All right? I rap so I got to be clever. But let's be more exegetical. Let me give you a more exegetical reason why the blood makes peace for us, but not for them. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, verse 12 through 15. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Let me just summarize this, because I know that's kind of clunky language and everyone doesn't think like that. Here's what he's saying. We sin because we inherited a corruption. That's why. That's why we sin. In Psalm 51, 5, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and then sin did my mother conceive me. Like David is saying, look, I was brought forth in sin. This is who I am. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 tells us this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. You see that inextricably linked? It wasn't just you. You were following who? The cosmic being, the prince of the power of air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See the inextricably linked? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know why we're, the, the cross makes peace for us? Because sinning is our nature. It's just who we are from conception because of what Adam did. It's our nature. We sin because we inherited a corrupt nature. We may choose what sins we commit, but we don't get to choose if we commit sin. We choose what sins we commit, but we don't get to choose if we commit because it's part of our nature. Now, I don't mean we don't resist sin as believers. That's not what I mean. What I mean is our fundamental nature, we're going to sin. And we got that from Adam. So in other words, we didn't choose to have this nature. We inherited it from Adam. So God says, because of that, I'm going to forgive you all if you accept the gift of forgiveness. Because your sin was inherited. But they didn't sin from an inherited corrupt nature. They're, they sinned because they made their nature corrupt inherently. You see, sinning is not a part of their nature. They made sin a part of their nature. We were made with sin as a part of our nature. There's no credible evidence, even philosophically, that I've known of, definitely not exegetically, biblically, theologically. There's no credible evidence that any divine beings, cosmic beings, inherited Satan's nature to kill, steal, and destroy. We have no biblical evidence of that. That any other being besides Satan himself has that. Jesus said he's been lying from the beginning. He's been sinning from the beginning. We have no credible evidence that any other being inherited his nature because he sinned. But we have plenty of credible evidence that we sin because we inherited Adam's nature. Satan functions like the Adam of the cosmic being. So 
But he did not transfer his propensity to kill, steal, and destroy. So when they sinned, they sinned because they wanted to. When we sin, we sin in some measure because we have to. And by have to, I mean by nature. By nature. You're by nature sinful. Job 38. Listen to this scene with God's talking to Job. Listen to this description of the angels. Prior to, as, as God was creating the universe. Listen to what it says in verse 4, Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who wants to get asked questions like that by God? Or who stretched out, who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So here we get a picture that as God is creating everything, all of the angels, Satan would be included, are shouting for joy. They don't have a corrupt nature. So when they sin, they sin because they wanted to. We sin and sometimes don't want to. Remember Romans 7? For I do not do the things that I don't want to do. For what is evil in me keeps up. And, I don't, and he's saying, look, I don't want to do this, but I do it anyway because of it. There's an internal battle. Even as Christians sometimes, we give in and we're like, dang. We wanted to, but we didn't want to. They did it because they wanted to. They didn't have to do it. They chose to do it. So Jesus said, I'm going to take the penalty for that sin, but you're not going to get the salvation that comes from it. You're not being redeemed. I'll take the wrath, but you ain't getting the redemption. Because you sinned in my presence. They sinned beyond my presence. We've never seen God. We sin knowing he sees us. That's a different ballgame. The cross is first and foremost the ultimate judgment against all other gods that have rebelled against the God, against God that led them into humanity. It was judgment day for them, but it was a day of salvation for us. Nah, we don't. Nah, man, I would have to, I'd have to Edward Scissorhands this whole point <laughs> just to explain what I mean. Ah. Let's close. Nah, I ain't going to do that to them folks in children's ministry. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for community, that there will be time to work through these things. And even when I run out of time to make this point, two things happened in that moment. It wasn't what you wanted me to do. And I got a point that I don't got to develop later on. Lord, I thank you for just that. This is a free sandwich right here, Lord, I'll take it. What I do, Lord, pray that you would help us to, as we are growing in our understanding of the supernatural implications of the cross, as we've seen throughout this series, Shockingly, how much your relationship to the cosmic sons of God is at work. Like we just view it, we viewed it largely from your relationship to us and humanity, and that is huge, but your relationship with the cosmic sons of God is also at play. We've seen it all over your word, and now we can't unsee it. So I, I just don't, I just can't, I can't imagine that as this scene plays out, from Genesis, we see supernatural beings from Satan. In Revelation, it's all about your battle with supernatural beings playing out in the earth. Your judgment of, of the earth and them playing out. We just see it in Revelation. Your word is bookend with this relationship. There's no way that the most 
important scene in this story is devoid of them and only on us. For you said the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out by the cross. You said you were not judging the world but came to save the world and we know you're coming back to judge us because you've offered salvation. Now you're coming back to see who accepted it for real. So Lord, as we wrestle with our reality, as we wrestle with our growing, we wrestle with our theological convictions, Lord, help us as has been the case and as was intended by Mike and I for this series, that we would have an endless fascination with you and your word. And even when things are somewhat over our heads, help us to remember they're under your feet. And that you will show us what we need to see. And we'll clarify where we could be wrong. Lord, if I've said many times, I pray this to you all the time, and I'll say it again. I'm shooting from half court. And I'll find out when I stand before you if I made it. And for now, Lord, may it be enough to glorify you and to serve the people I love the most. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.